The whole month of September is at the movies here at City First, and it is a great opportunity for you not only to join with friends and family, but also to invite friends, family, and coworkers to come. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, but it begins next weekend, all right? It begins next weekend. Turn to the person next to you and say, next weekend, all right? And then turn to the other person and say, be there. All right, it's going to be, it is, it's going to be exciting. It's one of our favorite times out of the entire year. We have a lot of fun, but we also really learn a lot of biblical truth. Well, let me say hello to everyone here at City First Church, all of our City First Church family. Give it up for God behind bars that's joining us right now. We love you, Dixon and Hardy. And also give it up for Cape Coral, give it up for City First Anywhere, give it up for every single person that's watching online. And uh, we're in this series called Love Where You Live. In fact, we're concluding it today. And, uh, and, you know, we're talking about not only loving the physical place where you live, but more importantly, bringing Jesus' love into the physical place where you live. Your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, the gym you go to, or whatever. Or last month, we've been talking about loving like Jesus we talked about living like Jesus. We've talked about investing like Jesus. And today, I want to talk about seeing like Jesus. Seeing like Jesus. In other words, how do we see our world, our space, like Jesus sees it? Because this is what I know. Many times, I see my space like Jeremy. I see it through my own eyes. But hopefully today that we will start seeing our space and place the way that Jesus sees it. Um, the very first week of, at the, or excuse me, not at the movies, the very first week of Love Where You Live, uh, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to touch on that parable a minute in a second here. And I want to talk about how an institution called the, the Princeton Theological Seminary did a study on that parable and kind of made it modern day. It's very interesting. But before I dive into that, I realize that every single week here at City First, we have people that are visiting and our guests for the very first time. So let me take a moment just real briefly to talk about this parable. Jesus told this parable about the Good Samaritan, and he said that a man was traveling on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which back in Jesus' day was a very dangerous path. In fact, people would get robbed there all the time. And Jesus said that a man was traveling, and he did get robbed, and he was left for dead. And Jesus said that a priest came and walked down the path and saw this man left for dead, and the priest walked around him. In fact, you know, some, some believe that maybe literally stepped over this man that was left for dead. The priest walked right on by. Then a Levite came. A Levite is kind of like a, a, a person that worked at the church back in the day. It's like a pastoral staff member. Um, and so, anyway, this Levite actually came up on this man and also walked over him and did not help. And lastly, a Samaritan came along and noticed the man that was left for dead. Now, in Jesus' day, who Jesus was fully Jewish, the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. It was actually a racial thing. Um, there was racism there. And, and so Jesus made the hero out of the story um, a Samaritan and, and a person that the Jewish people didn't like. And he said that basically the Samaritan came along and tended to this man and, and, and even paid for him to get well, paid for his medical bills, you could say. And that was really the story, all right? Now, again, that's the FedEx version of it. But now, modern day, 
uh, Princeton Theological Seminary decided to do a, a study and to see um, if people would help someone if there was a modern-day Good Samaritan situation. So what they did is they picked 67 pastoral students. Now, now these are people that are training to go into ministry, right? Picked 67 of them from their college, and these people didn't know what they were a part of. They didn't know they were a part of this experiment. And they had them show up one at a time at, let's say, Building A on campus, all right? So they came into Building A, and basically, they were told, these students were told, that they had to preach a sermon that was going to be recorded in Building B. So they had to go down the campus a little bit to another building to record it, all right? And, and what's interesting is, is that half of the students were told that they were going to talk and be recorded um, talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, all right? The other half were assigned various topics, various other church topics or whatever. And then some of the students were told that they had to really hurry to go from building A to building B. Because there, there was a tight time, you know, frame, and they, they were actually running a little late with the meeting, and they had to real quickly scoot there and get to Building B and record the message. Uh, other group were told that they were just right on time. Like, they, they couldn't diddly-dally. They couldn't stop at the coffee shop or anything like that. They had to get to Building B right away, but they didn't have to rush. And the last group was told that they had plenty of time, that they could get from Building A to Building B, and they had plenty of time. Well, along the way between building A and building B, Princeton Theological Seminary had an actor. And the actor was dressed up as if he just got beaten up and left for dead. And literally was placed on the sidewalk between the buildings. All right? The actor was made to look like he was in serious trouble. And the question the seminary was trying to answer was, under what conditions would these pastoral students stop to help the victim? All right, here's the, here's the findings. 63% of the students that were in no hurry, they were told they had plenty of time, 63% stopped. So a little over one out of two. 45% of the students that were in a moderate hurry, in other words, they were told they just had just enough time to get to that building, 45%, less than half of them, stopped to help the victim. Now get this, 10% of students stopped that were in a great hurry. The ones that were told they had to get to building B right away, otherwise they're going to miss their time slot to be able to record a sermon about the good Samaritan. 10%, one out of 10 stopped. Now remember, these are pastoral students, all right? The conclusion that the seminary found out is this, pace of life has a significant impact on how clearly we see the needs of others. Pace of life. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that most Christians or people that even claim to be Christian in America really care about the needs of others when they find out about those needs. They really do care. It's not like most Christians don't care, all right? But I believe that many times they're too preoccupied, we as Christians are too preoccupied to see the needs in the first place. Like, it's not that we don't care, it's just that we're too busy. We're too busy. You see, we need to teach ourselves 
the discipline of looking around us to see what is really going on. And when living a fast-paced life, we tend to become blind to the people that God puts in our path. How many of you know when you have a hectic schedule, you don't notice the important things, right? Princeton also discovered this. It was interesting. 53% of those speaking on the topic of the Good Samaritan parable stopped. 53%, but only 29% stopped that were speaking on other subjects. In other words, that those that were told they were speaking on the Good Samaritan, it was kind of like fresh in their mind. So when they saw that person, they were like, oh, I should probably do something, although, albeit not many of them. But if they were speaking on another subject, let's say they were speaking on, you know, some other subject in the Bible, they, they didn't notice. And the conclusion that I came up with is this, that if we do not continually remind ourselves to see like Jesus sees, then our awareness radar gets broken. We just don't, we just don't become aware. We just don't see the way that Jesus wants us to see. And my prayer for all of us, all of us here by the end of today's message is this, whether you're at home right now, in God Behind Bars, at one of our locations right here at Spring Creek, is that by the time we leave today, this moment, that we will begin to see a little bit more like Jesus does. Our neighborhoods, our schools, our homes, our workplaces, where we go have coffee, the restaurants, where we shop, wherever, we begin to see a little bit more like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus saw the woman at the well, like, G like Lisa talked about last week, that she was there midday. No one draws water in the Middle East at midday. It's like 120 degrees. Jesus was noticing, why is she doing this? She was avoiding people. So he approached her. Jesus saw the disciples struggling to catch fish as they were out on the Sea of Galilee, and they were becoming frustrated, and he could see their frustration, and so he called out to them. He saw Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man? A wee little man was he. You know, he's climbed up in a sycamore tree so the Lord he could see. Okay, that kind of thing. All right. You know, Jesus saw this man that was climbing up in a tree to see him. He noticed, now you gotta realize that Jesus had hundreds of people around him at that moment, pressing in, but he noticed the dude in the tree. And he saw his desire to learn, and so he called out to Zacchaeus and he invited him to go to dinner. See, Jesus saw what a lot of people don't see. And we need to be able to see. Jesus noticed the needs and the opportunities that were around him. And you could even say this, that Jesus had the ability to read the room. You, you ever heard that term before, read the room? In fact, can I tell you something? I think in this day and age, honestly, I think um, equally as important to IQ, if not even more important to IQ, is the ability to have EQ. In other words, to be able to understand your own emotions and the emotions of everything going on around you and to be able to read the room. If you read the room, it means you pay close attention to people's attitudes, their demeanor, the mood in the room, right? You're, you're, you're picking up on the cues that people are sending. You're trying to discern what people are really thinking, feeling, and experiencing. You are aware, okay? Have you ever met someone who didn't know how to read the room. Like, it might have been like 
you know, Thanksgiving dinner room. It might have been in the board room. It might have been in the break room or whatever. And they just don't know how to read the room. It's super painful, isn't it? It's like, hey, pick up on the cues here, right? Jesus would notice when someone was hiding. He would notice when someone was sad. He would notice when someone was searching for truth or they, they seemed overwhelmed or seemed guilty or maybe they were angry or they, they seemed lost, right? He, he would read the room. Why is it important for all of us to see the needs around us, to be able to read the room? Why do we need to see like Jesus? Because here, here if I could be honest, many of us, have plenty of needs of our own that can keep us super preoccupied. Like we already have enough needs, let alone noticing somebody else's needs, right? And this whole series, Love Where You Live, is all about being an agent of change and being outside of yourself and being missional. And I could hear some of you quietly in your mind saying, yeah, but I have tons of needs myself. I don't know if I have time or the energy to be able to help meet other people's needs, let alone see them? Well, that's a really, really good question. And I want to take the remainder of our time together, and I want to answer that question. Why do we need to see the needs of those around us? Well, first of all, number one, people need Jesus whether they know it or not. I know it seems super elementary. Like some of you are like going, all right, that's super elementary, but this is a Vince Lombardi moment, all right? When Coach Lombardi like was with his football team and held up a football and said, this is a football. This is a football. These are pro football players he was talking to at the time. Sometimes you got to start with the basics. And I want to start with point number one with the basics because it's a good reminder. In fact, I'm going to even use a verse that all of you have probably heard before or even if you don't go to church, you probably heard about John 3.16. I'm going to read it though out of the message version it says this this is how much God loved the world he gave his son his own one and only son and this is why so that no one need be destroyed by believing in him anyone can have a whole and lasting life God didn't go through all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger to hear that telling the world how bad it was he came to help to put the world right again anyone who trusts in him is acquitted anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it and why because of that person's failure to believe in the one of a kind son of God when introduced to him I love that 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 version you could say you see if heaven and hell are real then we must notice the needs of those around us if heaven and hell are real then we must see like Jesus sees if heaven and hell are real then we must be on mission and here's the thing, I realize this, um, in America especially, you know, people will amen and applaud when we talk about heaven. But the minute that we start talking about hell, everybody gets super awkward, and, and there are even some people that are like, I don't want you to talk about that. Can I tell you, you can't have a heaven without a hell and a hell without a heaven. You have to have both. There's no such thing as heaven at paradise if there isn't the opposite. And we here at City First, you know, I, I, I don't like the concept of hell. I mean, personally, if there's a theology that I wish that I could kind of take a magic eraser and erase it out of the Word of God, it would be that, trust me. 
I would much rather there be no consequence for wrongdoing. I would much rather that. But the Bible talks about it. And thus, we believe that it's real. In fact, it's in many ways what creates an urgency inside of our hearts. Because we believe that. And you know what? Um, there's a theologian who is also a writer. you probably heard him before. We quote him a lot around here, C.S. Lewis. He wrote, um, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, those stories, all right? But, but can I tell you, he was actually more of a theologian. And back in, in you know, post-World War II and during World War II, but actually in that era, he was actually kind of the theologian of the U.K., in fact, he had a radio program on the BBC all every week. And, and, and so C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He wrote, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has already done so on Calvary. You see, see to say we don't believe in hell, well then what are you asking God to do if you believe in a God? What are you asking God to do then to forgive sin? Guess what he did? 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross to forgive sin. So he has created the pathway. He has provided the solution. There is hope. God has already done the work. And listen, everyone can find forgiveness and a new life. But some people will not know about that unless they are told. In fact, Paul writes in the New Testament that how will people know unless somebody tells them? And how will people tell them unless they go? See what I mean? That's on us. We must tell people because this is what we know. Every person has an eternal destination. This life is not the end. And I realize there's people that out there, you know, religions that believe in incarnation and all that kind of stuff, reincarnation. Like, like I don't want to come back as a butterfly. I'll be honest with you, I don't want to come back. This world sucks. I mean, really, honestly. Like, like, like when this is done, I want to go there. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to come back as a cow. All right? Okay, listen, I don't. See, we believe that every person has an eternal destination and that what we do in this life actually matters in the next. And this should be, ladies and gentlemen, I know, okay, this is a football, okay? This is a football. I'm telling you, this should be a strong motivation, a strong motivation to reach out to neighbors and friends and coworkers and classmates so that they can meet Jesus because every person has an eternal destination. Second reason is this, is because not only do people need to know Jesus, but actually people want Jesus whether they realize it or not. People want Jesus whether they realize it or not. And you're like, well, you don't know who I work with. <laughs> All right? I, I get that. But Jesus being quoted in John 10.10, 10, he says this, the thief's purpose, meaning the thief meaning the enemy, is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Rich and satisfying life, Jesus said. This is what I know about your coworker. 
that they want a rich and a satisfying life. They don't want a life that is, is, is not satisfying. They don't want a life that is depleted of purpose or joy or happiness. And, and so this is the thing. Jesus is coming along saying, I give, I give a rich and a satisfying life. And this is what I know. Everybody wants that really deep down on the inside. And if they want a rich and a satisfying life, then what they really want is Jesus. You hear that? If they really want those things, they want Jesus. Therefore, therefore, we are the ones that need to communicate that. Do you know that spiritual problems require spiritual solutions? And um, all of us, all of us, but especially, you know, even those that are far from faith, but all of us, we experience time to time, we experience fear or pride or shame or anger or hopelessness, or addictions, or depression, or stress, or lack of purpose, or all of these things. We, we, we find this in this hopelessly broken world. These things, we struggle with them, right? Now, there are things that you and I can do to help mitigate some of those issues. But at the end of the day, listen to me, listen to me, City First. At the end of the day, more me time is not going to make those things all the way go away. A self-help book is only going to move the needle so much. Mental health days are only going to do so much. A change in your schedule is only going to shift things so much. You see, most of our problems are spiritual problems, and human solutions can only do so much, all right? So the real way to unlock a rich and a satisfying life, a life full of forgiveness and purpose and significance, is a spiritual solution to the spiritual problems that we have, all right? And here's what I know. Those of us that have found Jesus, we have the answer to these spiritual problems that our coworkers and neighbors and friends are carrying. They're walking around carrying these issues and they're trying to put into play human solutions and it's moving the needle a little bit, but not enough. And guess what? You and I, we have the answer. The answer is Jesus. We have the answer. We literally have the answer. And so therefore, we need to understand not only do people need Jesus even if they don't know, realize it, I will say that they want Jesus even if they don't know it or realize it. And we have the answer, and so we must be able to proclaim his name and, and to share Jesus. Number three is this, people need something different whether they realize it or not. People need something different. Um, simply put, what the world is offering isn't working. I mean, am I, really, really, I'm serious. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, it doesn't matter um, what solutions we find to what diseases that are out there. It doesn't matter, you know, how much money we make. It, 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 it just, it still isn't all the way working. It isn't working. Like, like, you know, more vices are not bringing more fulfillment. Um, you know, more money is not bringing more lasting happiness. More entertainment is not bringing more joy. More accomplishments are not bringing more purpose. More arguing is definitely not bringing more solutions. 
More searching is not bringing more finding. More sexual freedom is not bringing more love. More stuff is not bringing more contentment. Ladies and gentlemen, everything right now that culture and the world and society is saying, this will make you happy, it's not working long haul. It may give you a temporary thrill. It might give you a temporary satisfaction, but it doesn't work long haul. I mean, listen, we have more than any other society and culture in all of human history. We have all kinds of things literally at our fingertips. We have all kinds of resource. We have all kinds of technology. We have all kinds of an ability to have more wisdom. We have all these things, and yet read the studies. I don't have time because of literally our time, but I mean, read the studies on depression. Read the studies on burnout. Read the studies on, on all that is happening in our culture right now. And you know, it just isn't working. Yet, 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 as Christians, living in the same hopelessly broken world. Because we're in the same hopelessly broken world as everybody else, right? Yet, experiencing some of the same pain, some of the same disappointment, because guess what? We're not immune to that. How many of you, even in the last year, you have been disappointed? Okay, probably every hand should be up on that one, right? How about questions about life? Like something really frustrated you or question or hurt you, right? Or, okay, we experience all the same stuff, but yet we live differently. We live differently. You know, it, it, it doesn't mean we live perfectly. It doesn't mean we don't have times of struggle. It doesn't mean there's times that we don't live different and like, oh, I need to live different. But that difference is something that other people around us who do not know Jesus should see and also should want. I want to read for you out of a book called Early Christian Fathers, um, a letter that was found that we believe is written somewhere between the second and third centuries. The um, author of the letter is anonymous. We know who the recipient of the letter is or was. But this is how the letter went. For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. Yet, listen to this, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. What does that mean? Let me bring that into modern day lingo. They're in the exact same city, workplace, School, university, gym, you know, grocery store, Starbucks. They're in the exact same place as everybody else. But yet their life gives proof of something that is remarkable and extraordinary, something a little bit different. So they're in the same places. Like, like I mean, <laughs> they're, not, they're not, you know, living on a commune somewhere in the middle of nowhere just singing kumbaya. They're... They're in the same space, but yet there's something different. They live their own, in their own countries, but 
only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else, and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. You say, what does that mean? Well, back in Roman days, if, if you got a baby and it wasn't the gender that you wanted, namely female, they would many times take the baby and throw it into the river or out into the street to die. They didn't want to care for a baby unless it was a certain type of baby. And Christians didn't do that. They took care of their children. And this author points it out. Isn't that odd? Isn't it weird that the Christians aren't throwing their babies into the river? I mean, like, this is, this is like real stuff here. Goes on and says, and they share their board, meaning kind of like room and board. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. In other words, they share their, their, their house and their, their, their possessions, but guess what? They keep sacred their marriage. Goes on to say, it is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown, and still they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When they are affronted, this is huge, when they are affronted or offended, they still pay due respect. They put it, to put it simply, what the soul is in the body that Christians are in the world. Wow, what a powerful writing from 1900 years ago or so. You see, what that really means is, is that we as Christ followers, we see things different. So therefore, we live different. Put it this way, you know, we want our lives to be so attractive that people who know us but don't know Jesus will want to know Jesus because they know us. You hear that? Like your coworker, your classmate, they don't know Jesus, but they know you. So they know Jesus, and they want that. Your coworker deserves something different. Do you understand that? Like what they're going through right now, their life, they deserve something different. God wants them to have something different. They deserve God's forgiveness. They, you know, your, your, your neighbor deserves something different than the life they have. They deserve a God life. Your, your classmate deserves something different. They deserve hope. And so I encourage us to live the difference and then share the difference because people need Jesus whether they realize it or not. And they want Jesus, whether they realize it or not. And they need to experience something different, whether they realize it or not. And I have a great opportunity as I close, a great opportunity to put into action today's message. All right? Next week, we begin at the movies. And uh, we do this every year. It is a ton of hard work. Trust me, the staff and the dream team around here that helps put this together um, work 
countless hours. We're talking late nights for weeks putting together this month. We, uh, we put a lot of effort into it, and here's the reason why. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to invite your coworker, your classmate, your gym mate, the person at the grocery store or wherever to invite them to come to church. And we want to make it as understandable as possible. And this is what I know, that most people understand movies. They like movies. So when they come walking in the door and they see a movie that they know, and then they hear a biblical truth that is kind of teased out from that movie, but they learn about Jesus and they have an opportunity to meet him, God does amazing things. So I encourage us, let's invite our friends and family and classmates, let's invite them over the next month. In fact, invite them every week. And especially if there are young kids, there's going to be like movie characters in the foyer. There's going to be all kinds of photo ops, and there's going to be cool things to be a part of. But most importantly, whether it be like Jen talked about earlier in big church or whether it be in kids' church, people are going to learn about the one that can make a difference in their life, and his name is Jesus. And who knows that their entire eternity would change because they meet him and their sin is forgiven and their life is full of purpose. And as they go through the struggle of life, they now have a strength and a faith that comes from God. Imagine with me what God could do over this next month if we see like Jesus and invite people to find real hope. Let's bow our heads, all right? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you say, I need myself, I need myself to find Jesus. Maybe you're listening to me talk about the God who takes away all of our wrong and the God who gives us hope and the God who gives us a rich and a satisfying life. And, and in your heart of hearts, you're going, I need that. Well, I give this opportunity to you, and we do this most services because we know there's people walking in the door or watching online right now that, they, that you, just, you just need Jesus. And if that's you, you're not joining a church today, like becoming a member. It's nothing like that. It's not about denominations. It's about, it's about making Jesus the leader and the forgiver of your life. And if that's you and you say, today I need Jesus, with every head bowed and every eye closed, can you just go ahead and just put your hand up and put it right back down? All you got to do is put your hand up. Yeah, hands are up, and I guarantee you at every location, even in living rooms right now or in cars, um, you can put your hands down. I want us to all pray this prayer after me, and we're all going to pray it together, not just people who raise their hand, but we're all going to pray it together. And this prayer is inviting Jesus to become the leader and Savior, Lord and forgiver of your life. And so let's all say this prayer after me. You ready? Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you died for me and you love me. Thank you for your unconditional love. Become my leader and become my Lord. Give me purpose. Give me hope. Give me grace. And most of all, God, give me you. Thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, put your hands together.